Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always, Smithy, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet rose of history, Neil. How's it going? Uh, you know, it's, it's going fine. Like, I, the, you know, we're, we're in, like, again, just another weird part of history here in terms of trying to, like, bounce around again. We had a, a, a bit of consistency, I think, with, like, the Bush presidencies, and then we moved on to another family dynasty. But now we're all in, like, the random section again. So let's get to it. Yeah, I think uh, we, we we did it, Neil. We are, we've arrived to one of, if not the worst president of all time, right? Huh? It's up there. He's definitely up there. The last president, the last time around, uh, the mythical creature, John F. Kennedy, defeated Quincy Adam, the good old Quincy boy. <laughs> Nepotism did not make him a great president, even though he tried. He had good ideas. He just failed to execute. Neil, where are you taking us today? Today, I'm going to take us to the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> The year is 1912, guys. This is the first time I'm saying this. Arizona becomes the 40th date, pushing the American frontier to its limit. The Girl Scouts is founded by Juliet Gordon Lowe in Savannah, Georgia. Alaska becomes a territory of the United States. The Titanic sinks in the northern Atlantic as it struck an iceberg, uh, losing more than 1,500 lives, including that beautiful, beautiful Leonardo DiCaprio. United States occupation of Nicaragua continues as U.S. Uh, Marines continue to land in Nicaragua to support the conservative government. And New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson wins over former President Teddy. Been reading up a lot of Teddy, and I think I'm faltering on my support of Teddy. Teddy! And incumbent uh, President William Taft has Teddy divided the vote. Just shattered any hope. <laughs> Of all of us never having Woodrow Wilson as a president, but here we are. So, Neil, take it away. Okay. All right. Youssef. So, this is, you know, one of those episodes where I think I'm going to annoy you, you know, with one of my like favorite terms to use to, you know, raise the stakes here when it comes to how we cover a president. Mm. You, know what I'm, you know what term I'm talking about here? I, I don't know. I think I have a sneaking suspicion that you're going to tell me. <laughs> Well, today's episode, you know, we're at another key inflection point in history again, and within our Ooh. own podcast, right? No, I brought this, I brought this out in the in the Reagan episodes, if, yeah. if y'all were, were there for that. But when it comes to Woodrow Wilson, you know, these episodes I think don't come around all that often. Some listeners may be surprised that this episode would be so important to me in covering our 28th president. You know, you know, for better and worse, you know. His impact on our country and the world is, you know, one of the longest lasting in American history. But in a way, you know, that's, you know, similar to a, a president like Monroe. He's not exactly a name you'll hear very often for all the consequences and contributions he made in our, you know, current political climate. You know, preparing for this episode made me reflect on, you know, a lot on why the topic of U.S. presidents would be something that's, you know, important enough for me to do a whole podcast about. And, you know, for you as well, you said. You know, disregarding the fact that, you know, I love learning about history and American history in particular, given that I've, you know, lived in this country my whole life. I don't know what it is, you said. Like, it's like a, a mystical mystical aura, you know, that still, you know, somehow keeps me optimistic about the potential for what this country could be. You know, very painful, but also steady social and cultural advancement. And with that, you know, I feel like this nation has had an uncanny ability at finding new ways to cause harm as well in you know producing a constant flood of new technology especially you know within the past 75 years that has made life you know so different from any other period in history and so when when wilson took over the presidency just 110 years ago and you know again i just want to emphasize there are people you know alive living today that were alive during the Wilson presidency, children were still working in factories. You know, most homes didn't have electricity or indoor plumbing. You know, a quarter of children born at that time didn't even make it to the age of three years old. The quality of life that anyone had at this time was far, far worse than the average American's quality of life today. And 
you know, while that may still not sound remarkable to anyone listening, and even if I had, you know, spent time here acknowledging, you know, all the tragic events that our generation has had, you know, and currently lives through, I still think, you know, everyone in this country probably should be grateful that they avoided an existence of a life any time before the ending of World War II. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it, yes, it's truly traumatic what we've gone through, like, especially the pandemic, the recession, everything that we can mention. But we are, for the most part, the ones that are loudly complaining in a home or an apartment with air conditioner and internet and food that can be delivered to our homes. So, uh, yeah, even yes. like a, something like a toilet, you know, like, yes, I imagine. <laughs> a so. shower. You know, again, a social and technological advancement for society, you know, it's staying alive. And then to, to emphasize your point, like, like in more humane conditions and achievable feat for, you know, the large majority of our population. I mean, you can see Woodrow Wilson has a lot to do with that. And, you know, he has a substantial list of accomplishments that modernizes the structure of the federal government and labor conditions for the working class. Also inspired a framework that would later lead to, you know, whole governing bodies being formed internationally aimed at preventing global conflict and suffering around the world. You know, his domestic policy has helped to lay a foundation of providing more opportunities for ordinary workers to reduce the vast gap that existed in income inequality in the country from ultra-wealthy robber barons and businessmen, you know, redistributing, redistributing wealth and inspiring a middle-class movement that has been maintained since. With all that being said, Woodrow Wilson much like this country, is equally, if not more so disappointing than, you know, great and inspiring. And I honestly think it would, if we, you know, could pick one president that summarized, you know, the performance of our country on every scale imaginable from 1789 to 2022, you know, Woodrow Wilson's performance would fall in like the sweet spot of where we should land for our, our nation's performance so far in our recorded history. You know, he's one of the hardest working presidents that we've ever had. And some of his principles you know, were just as noble and inspiring as those of the, of the founders era. And he was actually interested in doing the real work of the job in every facet, you know, um, as a policy expert, an international diplomat, and effective public speaker. Again, though, even in acknowledging that he arguably does even more damage than good as president, you know, precisely because he is a complete hypocrite when it comes to his moral values and judgment, as were, you know, most of our founders when they collaborated to create, you know, the founding governing bodies of our nation. This is what's so frustrating about being someone who was born and has grown up in this country, because, and, you know, let me know if you agree with this, Yusef, you know, this conflicting contrast is always very present and very, you know, always very intense and very present in our society. And, and that's because I think of people like Wilson, right? Do you, do you feel, I mean, at least before the Wilson part, do you feel like there is like a, a dynamic in culture here that's, you know, historically just kind of paints the picture for us? I mean, yeah, everything that we've, that we have today is built on inhumane treatment of a lot of people that ended up being, you know, quasi utopia in the sense that. Sure, we have a lot more freedoms than any other countries. There are more opportunities to progress in this nation, but knowing how the foundation was laid down, and if we're using Wilson as an example of whatever the hell you or historians think he did or didn't do, when you look at the nitty-gritty of who the person actually was, it is very contrasting to see such a polarizing figure be uh, tied to certain good things, even though it might be one out of 100 things evil that he thing did, you know? Well, like, that's the thing, is like the good things, like they're very um, targeted towards specific groups of people. And you can see that today, like who are the winners and the losers of society and like who has, been, you know, like what groups of people have been picked to be the winners and losers in society in our history. I think that that's what I'm trying to speak towards here with Wilson is like, you know, he was someone who like brought about these, you know, changes that like modernized our standard way of living. But again, he, he made it an insufferable climate for people who didn't, that he didn't think deserves those privileges. Right. And so mm -hmm. it takes several generations to undo the harms of the Wilson administration in that sense. But 
the decisions he does and get I would right. and I would and I would argue that we haven't undone it well no yeah at I all mean, I, I wouldn't say I mean like you're saying at, at all I mean like it's definitely I think I would argue to the sentiment that I was speaking earlier and that like we are advancing little by little but just it's very minimal enough. though right yeah the the yeah. steps the, the with him we maybe took like 10 20 step backs and we've since we've made like three or four forward I feel, like, I feel like you read my you read ahead of like my script a little bit but we'll, we'll yeah okay but you know the decisions you stop sharing your script with me neil yeah <laughs> well i think that you know he does spur a much greater quality of life, just to reemphasize, for those who were not excluded from the new opportunities that he creates. And so, you know, again, with that intro, you know, Wilson does grow up in the South, first in Virginia, and then later in North and South Carolina, the parents who were loyal supporters of the Confederacy during the Civil mm-hmm. War. Even as a Southern kid who grew up in Confederate territory, you know, at first it seems a bit puzzling as to why he is unashamedly a, like kind of a, a racist throughout his professional and political career. Not that he kind of like touts it, but he definitely doesn't necessarily hide it. You know, as his parents had just moved to the South right before he was, you know, um, right before, you know, they moved from Ohio. And so they did not have, you know, the same Southern roots that he had to be, you know, such pro-Confederates in that sense. And so Wilson's father, though, Joseph Wilson, becomes a reverend in the late mm. 1840s when he MVP. moves yeah when he moves to the south he serves in several presbyterian churches that were made up of communities that glorified the south's position to hold on to the institution of slavery and so joseph comes to feel at home in these communities eventually and when the civil war does break out he helps to organize the presbyterian church of the confederate states of america it was in this kind of climate that wilson's Woodrow wilson that is his father teaches him, you know, about the justification of the South's succession from the Union. And, you know, this would, you know, be a huge influence on him going into his adult life. Um, Wilson would go on to graduate from Princeton University. Oh, can I, can I, I know that you're trying to, yeah, no, but can I, uh, uh, his dad converted his church to be a hospital for soldiers during the war. And he, protected the confederate soldiers um during the war you know notably like yeah like his, his mother had a huge influence in treating soldiers as well during that time i mean not the, i mean i'm not trying to villainize his mother either in that sense i mean i think that if you see a person suffering like obvious intent is to help but it's just interesting mm-hmm. because his, his, even his own mother is described to have a lot of confederate sympathies i guess in you know a way that a family would all kind of be united in that sense. Um, and so Wilson does go on to graduate from Princeton University for his undergrad. And after dabbling, you know, as an attorney for a year, he decides that the work is too dull for him. And he goes on to instead obtain a PhD in political science and history at Johns Hopkins University. I would say, you know, just one quick shout out, both of my undergraduate degrees there. Um, but and, but it was more of a theory, more of a theory, not actual written. history. Yeah, I mean, well, it's very important, very important to what I want to, because I really want to talk shit about this, but I'm going to keep you, keep you going. Very revisionist history, right? I mean, like, um, Wilson has his own agenda, I think, with the retelling of history. as A thousand percent. Being a a Southerner, I think he wants to paint a different picture of the South. Notably, Wilson is the only president to ever, you know, have a doctorate um, as a president of the United States. And so... This is the beginning of how Wilson, you know, somewhat separates himself as a fairly unique president for this era, as he's someone who expresses a, a Hamiltonian like frustration at the American system, at the American, you know, sorry, the system of American governments and how weak the presidency had become post Lincoln. I kind of sympathize with that frustration when it comes to these, you know, post eighteen sixty five presidents because they all have a lot in common and taking hand taking a hands-off approach to governance with the exception of debating about you know how high tariffs should be you know um wilson but but can i can i can i put a pin on that real quick 
sure. I feel like we've talked about this, that, you know, taking a hands-on or hands-off approach. What is, is it too much power to be uh, placed on one man? Uh, should, should it be more divided? Blah, blah, blah. Like, should there be a precedent? Like, we've, <laughs> we've gotten to a point of praising or, or or evaluating precedents and through this experiment that, or podcast, whatever you want to call it, we've almost come to the conclusion that, hey, maybe <laughs> there shouldn't be a precedent. Or yeah. you would subscribe to that post-1865 style presidency. Right? Yeah. So the problem is, like, Wilson will take it too far. So either you have a, a precedent that is super hands-off that, or you have a precedent that is almost abusing his power so it's almost it's it's always that double-edged sword of putting a single human being uh and becoming the most powerful man in the nation whatever you want to call him or her yeah well what's the sweet spot for you do you have a sweet spot so far yeah not being one there no (laughs) okay dang so we're in a we're we're in a podcast talking about presidents and you don't think that the the position should exist in itself currently yeah we we've we said i've said this a few times already in the i've i've picked, sprinkled it sprinkled it in well you sprinkled it i don't think i don't know if you've like explicitly said that the position shouldn't exist right i mean maybe uh, just if that. i if i was a better editor i would edit in all the times that i said <laughs> i said it but i said it multiple times okay okay all right well i mean dang okay I thought that maybe you were just on like you know you were you were feeling yourself but getting angry at a no, president no, no. like kind of but I didn't think that you were like a hard yes on like presidency shouldn't exist. Hard what yes. would you think the exec- should there be an executive branch? Yeah, but it should be more you know representative of all. You know I know that it's it. Never mind. Let's just go go Wilson. <laughs> this is a big episode. This is a lot to cover. Never mind. Okay. My okay. Well, we're, we'll revisit. We'll probably. I mean, I think that it'd be nice to have like a couple. Uh, like, even after all the presidents are covered, like, oh, oh, yeah, like, what do we think about the presidency now? And maybe that's when you get to go in on, oh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. But, you know, this is why, you know, I think Wilson wanted the presidency to operate more as a prime minister does in the UK and, and had a lot more influence over the legislator as, like, the leading party. Um, Which is so, ironic that, you know, bad presidents keep harping back to Britain when we broke away from Britain, but you know, whatever. It's it is what it is. Yeah, I think that's another I think that opened me up to want to have a founders discussion, but we'll we'll table that for now. So other than <laughs> theorizing on the weaknesses of American governmental institutions, we you know Wilson went on to write a five volume book on the history of the American people, uh, and a biography of the first president, George Washington. His success led him to receiving tenure at Princeton University and In 1902, he became president of the university as trustees of the school who were hoping for him to be able to, you know, reform slash, you know, modernize the school to keep up with its Ivy League peers. You know, Wilson met that challenge, you know, in some sense. He replaced the, you know, interpersonal lecture method of instruction with, you know, a more modernized mode in which, you know, he modeled off of how Oxford University, a British educational institution, their students um yeah and you know he went on to you know put you know princeton more on the map and he um, fired everybody as soon as he got there and he was very much hated in princeton and students and faculties protested him every single week <laughs> yeah but I, I would say the way that he he went about it wasn't necessarily at least in part, like the, the way that he wanted to do away with was, you know, the socially exclusive eating clubs and residential houses that were in favor of, you know, common, well, you know, yep. he was trying to get rid of like the exclusive, like, you know, secret societies that kind of existed within Princeton in that sense. And oh, can I, can I add something else too? Because I, I'm sorry. I, I really don't like Wilson. Um, he is, he is famously hated by historians as a historian because he wouldn't utilize he wasn't like strict with his references and his um he would mainly use like secondary um references and he would not quote them or put footnotes or you know things that actual historians do and very diligent (laughs) and and like if they if a historian writes 100 pages they have like a thousand references and he would have like 20 or 30 references and barely note them but yeah yeah i would say like the academic 
institution of like history has probably evolved a lot better since you know he was a scholar right and yeah i think that i mean that probably motivated him to be a historian so that he could help me write a more alter <laughs> yeah yeah um but the, the, it, you know thankfully that's not how you know history kind of moves on you know we we have later generations that see the flaws in his work and we were able to like speak about that now so mm-hmm. this is me trying to have a, a you know, a more op- optimistic perspective on modern society, right? Um, that yeah. you, <laughs> but I will say, in contrast to trying to get rid of more socially elite, exclusive clubs, he also pushed the school to keep black students from attending a university. A move that you know would foreshadow the actions he would later. Oh yeah, president. Oh, oh, sorry, I thought you were about to. What did you say? No, 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 no. I say, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and in keeping and in keeping with you know the revisionist history, he was uh, he was a proponent of the the lost cause narrative that tried to change the meaning of the Civil War and shedding a better light on the South, something that we're still dealing with today. Uh, the 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 civil rights that it was a state rights issue propaganda. Uh, and inside of his papers, he also praised the KKK, something that will also come back. Uh, later in his presidency, along with his segregation of um, what he called Negroes back then. Yeah, I mean, he's hugely influential. Like, again, I think that paints a, a good picture on, like, how hugely influential he is still on modern society. That, like, yep. you know, I've, you know, we, we've both hung out in, in Austin at this point, and at their state capital, there is this narrative there on, like, part of the lawn, right, in Austin, like, that, like, it's a states' rights issue. Like, the whole... Yep issue of the civil war and that like is a is a legacy component of wilson's painting of history right wilson's popularity at princeton provided him an opportunity to to jump into the political arena and he would go forward with entering the gubernatorial race for new jersey um, governor in 1910 as an outsider candidate who was not involved in the corruption that you know pervaded the whole post-civil war era of east coast politics if you recall, you know, all the way back to our Grover Cleveland episode, you said Wilson grew up in the heyday of trading favors from mob bosses and elected officials. You know, most notably, one of them being William Tweed, who was, you know, convicted for stealing an amount estimated to be, you know, between 25 and 45 million from New York City taxpayers from, you know, political corruption as a member of the House. But even like later estimates, you know, ranged that as high, you know, to be as high as 200 million dollars. And so... You know, Wilson promised that he was truly on the outside of those kinds of influences. And to his credit, that remained true throughout his political career, I would say. You know, voters had... Well, he promised he promised a lot of cabinet positions to alter that uh, presidential election. So I don't think he was, like, completely outside of favors and backhand deals. So... Not completely uh, outside, but I think in terms of, like, the... Uh, the mafia. The opponents... Yeah, the components of I'm talking about the Grover Cleveland era, where you know, if yeah. you, the highest bidder got to you know work on you know the high end infrastructure project. Um, that yeah. that's the more specific target I'm I'm mentioning here. And yeah. so, he was so, actually a good governor of New Jersey, though. I'm gonna I I can't bash on him that like he actually did some good work in New Jersey. So I can't I can't talk a lot of yeah. bad. Things. I mean, I think some of my emphasis here is that I think that he is someone who did good work and is a tragic figure in that sense, right? It's like our, our typical, I don't think there has been a president that we can, I mean, outside of a few, I am kind of, you know, I think that the more that we talk about very racist presidents, the more I just appreciate Grant for just being this like. Oh, you, the one that you just missed? <laughs> no, you cannot appreciate Grant, okay? No. Okay. But I really do miss Grant being on top. Don't talk about my baby boy anymore, okay? He is. He replaced Teddy in my heart. Like, he is my guy now. I don't want to say I should wish I could have that one back. No, no. Moving forward. I stand by my picks. I stand by my picks. Getting into the New Jersey election, you know, voters at this point, you know, were looking for any kind of politician that they could just, you know, put a little bit of faith into for not being corrupt at this point in American history. And I think, you know, Wilson rode that momentum to prevail as winner of, you know, the New Jersey's governor's race. And I think, you know, Wilson revolutionized the way that governors operated into their role in that sense as acting more of a, as a reformer and a thinker than an executor of the law. You know, Wilson was intent on making structural change within American government, you know, not just, you know, holding on to power, but, you know, also, you know, 
as governor, he would, you know, proceed to push. And I'm, per- and I'm going to reference a source here. I'm paraphrasing a bit from the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, who's, you know, really good at doing overviews of presidents. But, um, you know, through legislation that mandated, you know, direct party primaries for all elected officials in the state. And he also called for a public utility commission that empowered to, you know, set rates and support passage of a workers' compensation law to aid the families of workers killed or injured on the job. And, you know, for the first time in the state's history, Wilson began holding, you know, daily press conferences while the legislature was in session. He also required all candidates file campaign financial statements, which kind of sits close to me because that's like part of a job that I do now. And he limited, he limited campaign expenditures and outlawed like uh, corporate contributions to political campaigns. And so, yeah, part of me, part of me wishes like the, he, he would have just stayed as a governor. Um, maybe, uh, maybe he would have, maybe he just, like, he wasn't there long enough to do all the, all the BS that he eventually Mm -hmm. did as a president. Um, but he was actually a good governor. So if he would have stayed a governor, it would have been one of those, ah, he's a racist. He sucks, but he was a good governor. Then, but then he was like, oh, he's a racist. He's a bad president too, because of the things that we want to talk about but you know it is what it is go ahead yeah yeah i mean yeah the thing is that he's president for for eight years and he's only governor for two years so i think that that kind of supports your argument there like you know if he would have stayed as governor maybe things would have turned in a more negative direction right and so you know moving forward you know these novel reforms made him one of the most exciting democratic politicians since grover cleveland's meteoric rise in politics in the early 1880s and he would soon be tapped to make a presidential run less than two years into his New Jersey governorship. We won't get into all the complications that come with winning a major ticket nomination in the early 20th century. Let me just say, you know, it was a heavily complicated process of political maneuvering in a single night at the party convention where Wilson squeaked the nomination in the 46th ballot with the help of William Jennings Bryan, the three-time Democratic nominee who never won a presidential election. But our loyal listeners will know by now that, you know, the period between the Civil War and Great Depression, you know, were the glory days of Republican Party dominance. And Wilson was a Democrat in an election that was running against the Republican Party that was still extremely popular with the electorate. The problem for Republicans in the 1912 election is that their party is severely divided on who to nominate. Freaking Teddy. I'm so disappointed in Teddy. <laughs> now, we're in the middle of probably the strongest progressive movement in American history. Teddy Roosevelt revolutionized the presidency by really being the you know the first president since Lincoln and having major influence over domestic policies. In fact, you know, Wilson's dream to change the structure of the federal government to make the president more powerful is is kind of left behind after he witnesses Teddy's success in centralizing power back into the executive. Teddy relinquished the presidency though in, in 1908 and essentially chose his successor and best friend, William Howard Taft, to succeed him. And Taft does a fairly good job at carrying on Teddy's legacy quite well with, you know, minor hiccups that you can get, you know, more detail on in our second episode that covers the Taft presidency. But yeah, that's a good episode. Yeah, you know, really Teddy's fervor for being a leader and, uh, you know, the popularity that he achieved in his presidency, I think, is a real motivator to get himself back into the White House. But, you know, Taft does not really, you know, he doesn't take himself out of the race because of that. And so that severely splits the Republican vote. And, you know, that, you know, combined would, you know, you made for another landslide if, if, you know, they didn't combine their votes, I should say, or combine, like, the Republican Party split, it would have made for another, you know, landslide election for the Republican Party. And we wouldn't have Woodrow Wilson. Wilson doesn't know how to split the vote. Um, how many, split. how many, I'm sorry, Neil, how many of those, you know, how many of those are in history, not only in the United States, but, like, small what would you think in the past, in the moment meaningless decisions like oh yeah i'm 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 going to create a new party that's not going to affect anything like uh this dude uh clay right um, is that the one that i'm remembering the one that, yeah, yeah. like oh yeah i'm going to i'm going to nominate this dude he's he's a fine fellow and then he just destroys his party and it's like so many like small meaningless decisions like in the moment obviously they're very meaningful in hindsight that just shift history completely. Yeah, like I think just 
is fascinating to me, honestly. That's one of the things that I really love about history. Like before this podcast, obviously, like this became this came from your love of like American history and, and specifically politics. And I was like, hey, Neil, do you want to do this? Because I l- truly do have a passion for just knowledge, like just even if it doesn't stay with me 100%, like I can't re- like regurgitate all the things that you- I've learned in this podcast, but like just this type of conversations are so meaningful to me because it's like you just learn all those tiny stumbles that lead to the nation that we have now. Just yeah, wild. No, I, I mean, I'm obviously I 100% like appreciate um, all of that and like that's I think that yeah it creates more meaningful discussion within yourself of like you know what you kind of want to see in the world too and how like uh, you know how fair a society can like become through you know responsible governance and like you know governing is important like I, I don't you know, I don't think people really talk about the merits of like sometimes I joke about like having a whole new constitutional convention like how wild would that be like first of all it'd be very dangerous right because who would be invited to the constitutional convention probably like you know the elon Musk of the world and you wouldn't necessarily come out with a better product because of that no. right <laughs> like yeah like it's it's so wild that like all of our society is kind of moving at the, you know around this document that was like created this, like 250 years ago it, it feels bible-esque you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, you like you have to appreciate the um, like what, like how we've developed because of it and like kind of like, you know, the way that it's been able to like live and and like kind of like develop like the Constitution itself, I think is like a, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get into a whole constitutional love here, but like the way that it's, we're able to change it with amendments, even though we only have like 27 and we haven't had another amendment since 1991. Like, it's like, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to connect with people on that level because like people don't just don't like have those conversations randomly, right? And people don't really like like to entertain these conversations too. And so that's when, I, when you came to me with this podcast, I like, you know, got very enthused because I, it, it, as I get more into adulthood, I think it gets more rare that people are curious in that sense, right? I think you were referencing, like, you know, John Tyler, right? And said, like, well, Henry Clay was the leader of the Whig Party, but John Tyler kind of, like, took it over and destroyed yep. the party. John party. Tyler, that's my, that's, I think that's my favorite episode. I laugh so much. He's a horrible human being, horrible president, but that, I just couldn't stop laughing on that episode. It's so much, that episode is so much fun. That was so yeah, much just, fun. I mean, like, because history can go differently in so many different ways. And, and like in such different ways, like think about Gore and the presidency. I don't even know what our world would be like in that in that yeah. time, timeline, right? Like the, I think that's why people get so fascinated with like alternate universes and things like that. But oh yeah, yeah, people hijack people hijack our whole history, like in a in a huge way. Like who knows what could have happened? You know, decisions even made like a thousand years ago that could have like made our timelines kind of speed up to a more advancement. Like people. Yeah, like uh, Hamilton, if Hamilton would have been more of a... A presidential figure, maybe. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like more of a politician instead of like a bad guy, like in the in the weeds guy, if he could have been a bigger, bigger picture guy and actually created better alliances to actually propel him to become a president... Um, what the hell would have would have that nation looked like if if he had power after you know yeah. uh, Washington? And I mean that's what I mean. Like these things are still happening, right? Like what happened? I mean, it kind of some of it makes me dread, right? You know what's going to happen in the twenty twenty four election? What happened in twenty twenty eight? Like all of these things make a huge difference. Still, you know, I think that we can see that in this podcast. It's like every single decision is going to have this whole reflection period of like, oh, well that probably could have gone better, right? And so... Um, All right, let's talk about this racist bigot. I mean, uh, president. Sorry. <laughs> going back to the 1912 election, Wilson doesn't really know how the vote is going to be split between Taft and Teddy. And, but he you know, he correctly makes the calculation that Teddy is the larger threat in the 1912 election. And Wilson decides to become even bolder and rival Teddy's claim on, you know, the progressive agenda. You know, unlike... Teddy's call for stricter government regulation of monopolies. Wilson followed the advice of, you know, his key advisor, um, Louis Brand, and this is like a French name, Brandace, Brandice, and called instead for the, you know, the breakup of all monopolies in that sense. And then while Teddy, you know, would differentiate between good and bad trusts, you know, 
Woodrow Wilson suggested that all monopolies were harmful to the nation. He actually advocated to restore competition that would benefit consumers and reduce the power of corporate wealth in the nation. And so he called his program, you know, he was combating Teddy's messaging. He, he, he called this, you know, new freedom, I'm putting it in quotations, and wrote, you know, Teddy called his, you know, campaign agenda a new nationalism. Um, but they were essentially just both very progressive movements um, that they were just trying to outcompete each other. But you know, I think that Woodrow kind of did go in a more progressive direction, saying that you know regulation alone would never solve the problem of corporate power because corporations would use their power to control the regulator. And in most instances since the Civil War, you know that regulator would be the federal government, and you know they would be pretty well controlled by these robber barons of like Carnegie and Rockefeller. And you know Roosevelt believed that the federal government should act more as a trustee for the American people, controlling and supervising the economy and the public interest. And so Wilson would argue, and, you know, to combat that, that big business was deprived of artificial advantages, you know, such as like a protective tariff, for example. That the government's role would, you know, be more minimal because, you know, um, you know, natural forces of competition would assure that people would have an equal chance of success. And so that's why he was a big proponent of lowering the tariff. You know, not because he wanted to screw American businesses over, but mainly because he wanted to, you know, kind of decentralize all the wealth from just a powerful elite, which I you know, highly agree with that decision, you know, just in that context. Right. Um, yeah, but, you know, arguably, like I said, you know, Wilson had a stronger progressive record than, than Teddy as governor of New Jersey. And though he probably still would have lost if Cass decided not to run, you know, Wilson goes on to win by, a, you know, a landslide margin capturing 435 electoral votes to Teddy's 88. Now we've made it to the Wilson presidency. And again, just to emphasize the sentiment that I was speaking towards at the beginning of this episode, it's just a, a roller coaster of massive achievements and failures. You know, Wilson is heavily intent on driving the direction of the country solely through the executive. And there's a bigger opportunity to do that here, even as an outcast Democratic president for this era, because he leans into progressive issues that the Republican Party had somewhat, you know, somewhat had a monopoly on because they still carried that legacy of keeping the nation together during the Civil War and, and that they had the interests of all the people at heart rather than just, you know, selected groups. Of course, you know, that wasn't necessarily true, but Democrats were unsuccessful at putting themselves in that lane over Republicans until Woodrow Wilson gets to power. You know, Wilson looks to be the real deal. You know, he actually meets with William Monroe Trotter. Um, and I'm going to quote here from The Atlantic more so now um, on, on this component here of the episode. But Trotter um, is, you know, a nationally prominent civil rights leader and newspaper editor during this time in the early 1900s. 1900s he was often, you know, mentioned in the same breath as W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. These are, you know, uh, historical. They sound like WWF wrestlers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you think back to like, like a, like the University of Cincinnati, like they call their bookstore, like you know the boy like bookstore or whatever. Like they, he, I mean they do have like pretty huge legacies, like in the pre you know M, you know Martin Luther King Jr. days and uh, Malcolm X and you know unlike you know Washington, you know Trotter, you know really like looked to Wilson's presidential run for black support, seeking fairness, you know for all Americans. He kind of you know really believed that Wilson was the presidency to deliver for you know, you know black Americans and actually Woo. be able to come away with with more civil rights. Yeah, um, he really missed the boat on that one, huh? Yeah, I mean, like, well, the thing is, swinging a miss. Wilson manipulated pretty well. You know, um, he came away from the meeting, you know, kind of with a pleased tone that he was, you know, kind of like walking on air that Wilson was going to be this second coming of Lincoln in some sense, and so. You know, you can see that Wilson convincing Wilson was convincing and that he would change the nation for everyone's benefit, especially those who had little wealth and power. And again, you know, he did have major achievements domestically, getting legislation through Congress at a at an LBJ level of efficiency, I should say. You know, one of the first things that he passes in Congress is the Underwood Simmons Act, which achieved the most significant reductions in rates since the Civil War and in tariffs, that is. And, he argued again that high tariffs create monopolies for consumers, and you know his yeah, lower tariffs. But it created like a, the the income structure that we the income tax structure that. That is right. Yes, I'm about to get to that. So yeah, this this 
tax, you know, offset, you know, he, he wanted to make up for the revenue that we would be lost from these tariffs. And so he created, you know, this first form of an income tax. Yeah. Thank you, Woodrow. This is essentially the birth of our modern income tax system in the United States, something that has never gone away since this presidency. Yeah, I mean, but you're you're one of those people who used to have people live in a state that doesn't even have a state income tax, right, in Texas. So that at least yeah, has that, right? But talk about talk about property taxes and how it more than makes up for that. <clears throat> right. Wilson also pushes through the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, and this established... 12 regional reserve banks controlled by the Federal Reserve Board. This is a new mm -hmm. federal agency whose members were appointed by the president. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, I think that was purposely put in place to make Wilson a bit more powerful, right? But yep. this new Along federal, with the FDC. Right. This new federal system could adjust interest rates in the nation's money supply because it was authorized to issue currency based on, you know, government securities and commercial paper. And, and so, you know, this empowered this new system to adjust, you know, federal interest rates or the discount rate. You know, it could charge to its member banks for, you know, for money deposited in the branch reserve banks, which would, you know, indirectly control the interest rates that banks charge their borrowers. And this is like resembles, again, another, you know, modern institution. Like the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates, like, you know, pretty severely for the first time in like, you know, 13 years. Um, no, yeah, all of the movement, movement look, look progressive but essentially it was geared toward making the executive branch more powerful yes i mean exactly that and like as you just hinted to the federal trade commission law passed that same year as the federal reserve which created a new government board appointed by the president you're getting this general theme that i'm laying out here that the, the president is making all these moves to kind of empower mm -hmm. these new executive institutions um, but they were empowered to in investigate and publicize, you know, corrupt, unfair, or anti-competitive business practices. Yep. And so this created a whole new department for the executive as well um, that he convinced Congress to pass a separate cabinet level Department of Labor in 1913. And so, mm -hmm. you know, wow, these are really, um, you know, progressive steps, like you said, like, and I think important to protecting workers' rights. Um, it does centralize power quite a bit and, and takes away a lot of power from the legislative branch, which is so, I mean, you have to kind of give it to, you know, Wilson in the sense that he's able, you know, Congress is still, you know, controlled by Republicans at this point. He's able to just, you know, sway these legislators into, you know, he is, he is one of the most effective people in the job he's just doing a lot of like very shady things with his power like he's just very effective with his power like we uh he also created the he is also like a very big proponent of the jim crow laws and within all the federal government uh, uh federal um, jobs he creates segregation so black employees cannot mingle with white employees within all the federal appointment and also stagnated or essentially decapitated any progression uh, any black employee had inside of the federal government being relegated to low-level jobs after Wilson took over. Yes, on the surface, it looked very progressive, but at the same time, he's just like just hoarding power towards the executive branch and everybody's just going along with it because he's such a good orator um, and he just convinces everybody. So yes, he's a very effective president. I'll give you that. But his, his, his intention is very evil at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, yeah, you got, you got ahead of me a bit in, in a way that, yeah, I mean, I, I do agree. We're in, we're in pretty strict agreement in this episode, which is, it, it becomes out of a bit of a rarity because I feel like we've been in a No, we're always so, in agreement. George H.W. Bush sucks. All right, continue. No, 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 no. Yes, yes. Um, or best one-term president, I should say. But, no, it's not. So he was able to have such legislative success because... You know, he was immensely dedicated to devoting his time to Congress. You know, I will say he, he not only became the first president to address Congress since John Adams, something that like amazed me. I didn't think that it took that long for a president to address Congress again. But, you know, something that he would do dozens of more times throughout his presidency to put more pressure on legislators to enact his agenda. He actually, I mean, he really created a, the, the State of the Union address um, that we still have every year today where the president addresses all of Congress and kind of gives this ceremonial like speech of 
you know, how strong the country is going. And then the opposite party who isn't ruling has a rebuttal at the end and nobody watches. But yeah, like this is, you know, all from Wilson's influence here. You know, while these, you know, legislative wins are, are somewhat major achievements, especially in the context of, the, you know, some of our present day, um, you know, governance, Wilson's love for the Confederacy equally made its way through his presidency, as, you know, uh, Yusuf noted. You know, he allowed members of his cabinet to introduce segregation in the federal departments, such as the post office and the treasury department. And, you know, black people protested the separation of, you know, blacks and whites in restrooms, cafeterias and offices in the federal government, you know, through letters, petitions and mass meetings when this, you know, took place um, in his first mm -hmm. term. And William Trotter came back for a follow-up meeting while Wilson was president, um, you know, feeling pretty deceived. And, you know, Wilson actually agreed to meet a second time with Trotter on November 12th, 1914. Um, you know, and he went on to say that only two years ago, Trotter, that is, you know, you were heralded, you know, as this, like, you know, perhaps the second coming of Lincoln, right? And now, you know, our leaders, you know, who supported you are, you know, saying that, you know, you're a traitor to, you know, Black Americans. He reminded the president of his pledge to, you know, assist Black people in advancing the interest of, you know, you know, civil rights in the United States and ended up, you know, posing a question that was kind of, you know, a, a sort of like a sharp rebuke at Wilson, you know, you know, have you, he said, you know, have you a new freedom for white Americans and a new slavery for, you know, Black, you know, fellow citizens? And so Wilson, took a lot of issues with this, right? And you know, he viewed segregation as federal agencies, or at least he frames that to black people as a benefit to them, right? He said mm -hmm. that, you know, we're, we're seeking not to put, you know, black employees at a disadvantage, but to make arrangements, arrangements which would prevent any kind of friction between, you know, white employees and black employees. And so, sure. <laughs> you know, Trot yeah, and obviously Trotter found this you know, to be just, I've, I've always I've, I've always found it fascinating how you know con artists frame things like if you look at it right now like the biggest con that is happening in society and maybe I'll take some flack for this from our 20 viewers or listeners the crypto crypto market right now is like one of the biggest scams happening and everybody that kept keeps creating a new coin before they pull the rock from and uh the people that buy into collect mm -hmm. millions and runs away it's like they go like oh no it's actually it's to help africa to create a currency because we really want to help develop uh third world countries and it's like i mean you can frame it as like however you want like we'll Woodrow could frame it however he wanted. He clearly just wanted black people to stay away from white people. That's all he wanted. That's like, oh no, it's actually to help black people um, so they could progress by being shunned to the corner. It's like, really? Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, again, I, I actually wholeheartedly agree there. I mean, the whole cryptocurrency movement has really been like a predatory movement in a sense on yeah. lower income people because you know you kind of buy into this hype like oh i need to get in on this before like it's too late and that's kind of what they feed off of right it's, it's kind of the same sense of like what a website does when they say like their sale is going to end in five hours and you know if you don't yeah. take advantage of the sale you're going to like lose out on all these opportunities like i think is like describes the, you know, the cryptocurrency movement pretty well mm -hmm. just as a metaphor <laughs> yeah it's just and, it's just the new uh they are the new tupperware ladies the new yeah um mlms I'm definitely, you know, proud to say I'm not a crypto bro in any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is this is like a lot of deceivement and manipulation and like clever. I mean, I don't even want to say clever, just, you know, um, evil, like, you know, shift. Manipulation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Wilson frames it, you know, the end of this meme trotter that he's having, you know. My question would be this, this is calling for Wilson. If you think that you know, you gentlemen as an organization, he's calling, you know, these leaders, these, you know, black leaders, he means like, you think that, you know, black citizens of the country, if, if you're being humiliated, if you think you're being humiliated by having, you know, this kind of segregation happen in the federal government, then you'll believe it, you know, it's not actually real unless you say it's real. <laughs> it, it, it's just like kind of like gaslighting <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, but it's not only gaslighting, Neil, it's gaslighting via the most powerful man in, in the nation so that's why i'm saying like he has all the power in the world so and on top of that he has uh 
countless of people, like-minded people that also have like segments of power, like legislators, congressmen, leaders of like CEOs and stuff like that that are behind him. So how do you how do you rectify that in your head after being like, oh yeah, presidents, huh? They're good. You know, yeah. it's like he's gaslighting a large section of the people that he's supposed to be governing over. Like he's just shunning them to the side and you go like, oh, he's actually not that bad. He put the federal reserve. No, he sucked. He's horrible. He's a horrible human being. Well, yeah. you know, I, And also I, I try to like give some sort of um, leniency to like context of like where people grow up. Right. But I get this is like, I, I try to. The reason I point out that he had a PhD is not to like try to make him sound more impressive. I think it was more so to say that like he's somebody who got so much education, more education than any other president, that he should have known better, right? Like yeah. he went to Johns Hopkins, he didn't go to like some like Southern University. Like he got Yeah, but I think education. I think he went to all those I think he went through all that trouble. Honestly, this is not my opinion and I am formulating as I speak. So I am in league with anybody on the internet that people just form opinions on the fly and then they stand by them as if they thought about them. Um, and here I go. Here I'm going to say my opinion that I'm currently formulating. <laughs> he he sought out all those diplomas. He sought out all those positions like being the head of an university, being having a doctorate, um, so that his views would be more validated. I don't think he sought out those diplomas and those positions of power in education to better inform himself. I think he sought them out so that his views on the world wouldn't be questioned because, oh my God, no, he's such an educated person. Obviously, he knows what he's talking about. That's Oof. that's my thing. I think that's a very, that's a great take. I mean, but yeah, I mean, why else? I mean, it, it, it does establish a very high sense of legitimacy, right? Yes. Um, especially being the president of some, an institution like Princeton, you know, anybody who says, anybody who reaches that, you know, kind of position has like this, again, this aura around them, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a fairly reasonable thing considering that, I mean, there's, there's also the, the fact that like, he, he probably did believe, I think, in a lot of what he was trying to implement like he probably did believe that the south you know shouldn't have been you know vilified for their stance in the civil war and it yeah, shows that's, that's the scary that's the scary thing about beliefs that's that's truly the terrifying thing about beliefs yeah, like they're, they're very it's a double-edged sword like you and i could truly think we're standing on the right beliefs and we're trying to push society to a better place and there's literally somebody on the opposing side that has the same thought process that there are pr progressing society in a positive way so it's like it's, it's a very scary notion that, wow that's great i mean i mean that, that's just great commentary on you know the takeaway from uh wilson right here um yeah and you know i think it's safe to assume that wilson didn't actually I mean, maybe didn't actually believe what he was saying in regard to introducing segregation in the federal government, right? And how that could be a benefit to black people. But, you know, that it was, you know, the best argument for manipulating black people that, you know, voted for him in 1912 to accept his explicitly racist policies. And so he moved the nation. I, like, again, this is something you already said before, but he moved this nation seven steps backward when it came to issues of race as he is actually the president who holds a viewing of the movie Birth of a Nation in 1915 that portrays the Ku Klux Klan as heroes of the South who protect yes. the you know, local populations from outbreaks of black violence. And a movie, a movie that low-key has a shadow to him inside of the movie. Fun fact. It does. No, that's yeah. that's 100%. Yeah, like true. Like he they quote they quote his um book that I cited earlier is a uh, history of the American people in which he sympathized with the Ku Klux Klan's movement. Um, a movie a movie that he would later review as something so powerful and true, you know, I'm paraphrasing. So it's like he like fully loved that movie. Yes. Yeah, I mean showing showcasing a movie in those days in the White House was like, you know, the greatest endorsement that you could put on a movie. And so yes, Wilson he's fairly Firmly, like sets in stone his legacy in the sense that more and more ways we get further away from this president, he starts to suffer as a result. I think in his presidential rankings, as from his blatant racism here. 
Yeah. And so, like, there's there's a lot that goes on in this presidency. Like, we are, like, I think an hour and ten minutes into this episode, and we haven't talked about World War One. We haven't talked about League of Nations, his 1916 election, and you know how he kind of like falls out of you know being able to even run for a third term because you know somebody like this was never going to give up power willingly, right? Like yeah. he only doesn't run for a third term because he has a stroke, like in yeah. his last his years of his presidency. Um, Imagine of all the racism he could have done. Um, and we haven't even talked about the the both invasions of uh, Mexico, the invasion of Haiti, the invasion of the Dominican Republic, the invasion of Russia. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. How he how the term Wilsonian is used to describe uh, certain politicians that utilize uh, American values as justification to spread colonialism. Oh, I stumbled on that word. I was go- I was on a roll, Neil. Colonialism. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I mean, I, do you want to split this? Do you want to split Wilson? I think we should split Wilson. Like, this is bad. And like, I, I think World War One, World yeah. War One is very. Oh, we have to, now. we have to, we have to get to I, the espionage, the Sedation Act. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. I, yes, you know what? We, need, yes. we need to split. We need to split Wilson. You're right. Wilson sucks. Wilson yeah. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll we'll find a way to open the episode. I think in a, in a, not in a new light, but still, like you know, we're not. Like, I just hope listeners, like, still, like, it, it's going to be another important episode, but it's going to speak more towards our global affairs of, like, American politics and Wilson's role in that. Because, again, we, we didn't have enough time to really cover the Wilson presidency is, is very, just a lot. Yeah, I think we, this season has been very ambitious outside of Quincy, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Bush and the Bush family and Wilson uh, deserve hours um, to di- dissect and analyze. Um, and when I, and, and, and I think it, I should get a, 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 a badge or a point at least, because I opened the podcast saying uh, we made it. We, we got, we got to the worst president, one of the worst presidents. And Neil was like, huh, I don't know. And then an hour and 10 minutes later, he's like, oh, we need two episodes for this guy. <laughs> we need to keep yeah. talking. No, we do. I mean, I did it, you know, again, going in, I sometimes can sense, like, when I put together, like, in, you know, when I when I touch on, like, episodes, like, when I want to do a two-parter, and, like, this wasn't one of them, admittedly. But now going in, like, I feel like, yeah, I messed up. I messed up. So thank you for, for sending us here. Yay! All right, um, we're going to have pause, guys. Uh, this has been uh, a very interesting episode. I'm going to be very honest. Uh, I thought I would come in hot like I came in for the bushes, but I've, I've stayed, I stayed cool, and it's been a good conversation, and I'm very lo- – I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, all the invasions, World War I, uh, his failures with the League of Nations, and um, his treatment of Russia and how – that has backfired on how Russia looks now and um, how his failures to prevent World War II. I don't know. It's, it's big. He's a big dude. He he really is, uh, as Neil's favorite word, a point of inflection in, in our history. And I really blame 1,000% Teddy Roosevelt. That's why he's moved <laughs> off my heart. You blame Teddy Roosevelt off the bat? What? Yeah. All this is Teddy's fault. No. Uh, or he he's just like Taft is not good enough. He's not he's not doing exactly what I want him to do. So I'm gonna it's like, dude, I'm sorry, I should have. <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. Grant okay. is my baby boy now. So every time we mention Grant, I'm gonna go Grant. It's not the same as Teddy. Teddy. It's not the same as Teddy. Teddy uh, sounds better. We'll say that that's a journey that I think I I would go. Um, the first knock was when we mentioned. Uh, Teddy's involvement in uh, colon- the colonization of Puerto Rico and the uh, Caribbean. I was like, ooh, wait, I got to read up more on Teddy. And yeah. yeah, the more I've read up on Teddy, it's like, he is an yeah. awesome character, but he has a lot of flaws. All right. Yeah. Never mind. That that was a weird tenure to go on Woodrow, huh? Let's close out <laughs> Woodrow. Episode. All right, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for this episode. Uh, guys, uh, please... Stay tuned for part two of Woodrow Wilson. It's going to be a banger. Um, just I have a more more fun notes about what he did and how 
Uh, we're still dealing with the repercussions of his actions, and Neil is going to bring more uh, history context on why Woodrow is one of the worst presidents of all time, in, in, oh. in my opinion. My opinion. I think he's easily top three. Easily. Okay. Well, we'll see. Neil, anything, we'll anything you want to add before we close out? No, 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 this has been a really fun episode, and yeah, stay tuned. We'll 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 get a little bit more uh, in the weeds in part two. All right, uh, subscribe, share. Um, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. <laughs>